Okay, today we are uh, in the last uh, few verses of Romans chapter 3. Last week I scaled back and only tried to do two verses and I managed to get them done. (laughs) Uh, But uh, today uh, I'd like to look at verses 27 through 31. So the tail end of the chapter there. And... uh, We'll look at that in just a minute, but let's kind of go back and dig in the deep recesses of our mind and try to remember what did we talk about last week? And I know some of you were here, so. We looked at verses 25 and 26 primarily. Well, in God's forbearance, uh, not injustice. Okay, okay. And what were we talking about when we were talking about God's forbearance? <laughs> well, the fact that some sinners get away with, I mean, we all sin and we're not punished for our sins or eternally. God is just because God did take his sins. Yeah, yeah. So he's not ignoring the sin. It's not that he doesn't care or that it doesn't matter to him. Uh, and uh, particularly when Paul's talking there about the forbearance there, particularly he's talking about how in the past, under the old system, the Old Testament system, the sacrifices didn't, the sacrifices they offered in the tabernacle and the temple didn't actually take away sins. And God was at that time passing over, overlooking sin. But He wasn't overlooking it in the sense that we often think of it. He, he was ignoring it. But, but it applies, as Mike was pointing out, <coughs> to, uh, to uh, the fact that God oftentimes in our lives uh, doesn't zap us immediately when we sin. And I'm sure glad because I'd be fried egg right now. <coughs> but uh, He doesn't do that. Uh, but that does not mean that he isn't righteous, and that there is not that there's not a need for some way to deal with our sin. So, good, good point there, Mike. What else? Okay. Now, those are two big words that we can hardly pronounce. What are, what are we what were we talking about? Yeah, traditionally, propitiation is the idea of appeasing the wrath of the gods in the pagan cultures and in the pagan religions. And of course, in the yeah, we still have that idea. Propitiation is the idea of assuaging or turning aside wrath. But in in the case of the of the New Testament use of the idea of propitiation, we don't have a capricious God, an arbitrary God like the pagan gods, but we have a constant God. We have a God who is sure and certain and unchanging and and his uh, his anger is not just his his being uh, peaked at some little irritation that we have uh, caused him but that it is rather a just anger over our sin and uh, so so in, so in one sense the propitiation in, in the Christian faith is different from the propitiation uh, that we see in uh, in the pagan religions. It's also different in the sense that in the pagan religions, when a propitiation was offered, when a sacrifice was offered to assuage the wrath of the gods, it was always a sacrifice that, that the individual made to God. But in, in the New Testament, we discover that the propitiation offered to, to turn aside God's wrath was God Himself. He offered Himself as a sacrifice. And so it's really a radically different thing in that regard. What else did we learn? Uh, 
that word that uh, Sarah mentioned, the Greek word helasterion, uh, is often used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, to refer to something in particular. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, yeah. It is used over and over again in the Old Testament to refer to the mercy seat. What was the mercy seat? Okay, so you had the Ark of the Covenant, which was a gold chest about a little less than four feet long and a little more than two and a half feet wide. Uh, in which were the sacred items. Uh, eventually, uh, it included the, uh, the uh, tablets of the Ten Commandments. It included the, the, uh, the jar with some manna in it from the wilderness. And it included the rod, Aaron's rod, which budded uh, spontaneously or miraculously. And uh, uh, it contained those items. But on that chest or box was the lid, this gold lid, and on that lid formed as part of the lid were the cherubim, the angel-like creatures whose, uh, whose wings <coughs> stretched out, excuse me, <coughs> stretched out towards each other over the ark. So they're facing each other from either end of the lid of the ark and they're facing each other and their wings spread out. So you have this kind of space or area between the outstretched wings of the cherubim and the actual lid uh, of the of the ark, and that that area there, that lid was called the mercy seat. And what was significant about that area underneath the wings, between the wings and the mercy seat? What was significant about that area? Obviously, just a small area, probably no bigger than what I'm showing you here with my hands. Uh, but what was significant about that area? That's where the Shekinah glory resided. That's where the glory of God resided. And God said, if you want to talk to me, if you've got any questions, you come in here and you talk to me and that's where I'll be. Okay. So, of course, it was nothing visible. There was nothing, uh, there, there, uh, there was nothing tangible, I should say, there. Uh, there was no idol there. Nothing like that. No image of God. It was just there where His glory dwelt. Okay. And, uh, and so we have this uh, this mercy seat and this word that Paul is using here in Romans chapter 3 is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to that mercy seat. So what's the significance of Paul using that word here in Romans chapter 3? So what is he referring Now remember the word, the Greek word we're talking about, hilasterion, is translated here in verse 25. It's translated by the word propitiation. Okay. Okay. It's translated mercy seat. Okay. So in Romans chapter three, what is the hilasterion? What is the propitiation in Romans chapter three? Jesus Christ. Okay. It says, He has been made our propitiation in His blood through faith. Okay. So, so what we discover then is that this mercy seat of the Old Testament is actually a picture or an illustration of Christ. And Christ is the, Christ is the antitype, we say, of the type. So the, the mercy seat was what we call a type. It was a picture. It was a shadow. It was an illustration. Okay? And that, we refer to that as a type. The, when we talk about an anti-type, we're talking about the thing of which something is the illustration. So, for example, uh, we have, or, or in this particular case, we have the type is the mercy seat, the anti-type, the reality to which the type points is Christ. Okay, so he is the antitype. He's the reality of which the mercy seat is merely a shadow. Okay, so Christ is the mercy seat. Now, what we discovered uh, last week, remember, we discovered is that is that 
that Christ kind of fulfills both aspects of this because what would happen at the mercy seat in the Old Testament? We know the Shekinah glory dwelt there, but where was the mercy seat? Where was it located? It was located in the Holy of Holies, in the holiest part of the tabernacle, and then ultimately in the holiest part of the temple. And, and, and what was significant about that place, the Holy of Holies? Okay, the priest could go in only once a year, only one priest, the high priest, one person would go in once a year, and when he did, what would he do when he went in? Okay, he would take the blood from the, uh, from the atonement sacrifice on the Day of Atonement that was offered. He would take that blood from that sacrifice that had been offered out in the other part of the tabernacle, and he would bring that in to the holiest of holies, and he would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat. And what we discovered about Christ is that, is that He is the propitiation. He is, it says He is the propitiation in His blood. So what we discover is that Christ is both the blood sprinkled and the mercy seat upon which it is sprinkled. He is both. And so, in Christ, then, the wrath of God on my sin and on your sin is turned aside because Christ is the propitiation. Okay? So those are some of the things we talked about. What else did we talk about in those verses? Talked about that the Holy of Holies was in private. There was this picture and the Calvary was a public display. Okay. Okay. And Paul makes a big thing out of this. He stresses this. He talks in verse... Uh, 26, uh, excuse me, in tw- uh, yeah, in 20, uh, excuse me, 25, he talks about God displaying publicly there at the beginning of 25. And then later in 25, he talks about demonstrating uh, that uh, uh, his righteousness. And then in verse 26, again, he talks about this demonstration. So there's a, there's a, there's a heavy uh, emphasis in these verses on the idea of the public nature of Christ's propitiation. Why was that important? Okay, to demonstrate that God is righteous. Because there's a couple things about Paul's Gospel. Somebody hears Paul's Gospel and they might think, well, God hasn't been righteous or God isn't righteous. And and, uh, the first of those things is the thing that Mike mentioned uh, at the outset, was that God, that God appears to pass over sin, that God appears to overlook sin. And that in fact, year after year, when the high priest came into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled the blood on the, on the uh, mercy seat, and I asked the question last week, I said, what happened when the high priest sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat? And of course, the answer was, nothing happened. There was no sin forgiven. Because the Scripture teaches explicitly that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So you have the high priest coming in and he sprinkles the blood sacrifice and his sins are not washed away by that. His sins are not forgiven by that. Nor are the sins of the people. Yet he walks out of the Holy Holies alive. Obviously, God has passed over his sin. God has overlooked his sin. Is God righteous? How can a righteous God overlook sin? Well, in order to prove that God is in fact righteous, He made a public display. So the second mercy seat, the real mercy seat, is not done back in a corner in a closet or in a, in a holy of holies someplace, but it's done right out there in public. It's done out there on the thoroughfares of Jerusalem of a large city in the first century, right there on a public thoroughfare where people come and go as they go back and forth from Jerusalem to other various parts of the empire. He's, he's crucified right there. I have stood there and I have looked at the actual spot where Christ was crucified. And it is even to this day a, a very busy, busy, busy intersection outside of Jerusalem. And, and that is where he was crucified. And not only was he crucified there, but he was crucified at the pinnacle of one of the greatest feasts and festivals 
of Judaism. And so there were, there were just hundreds of thousands of additional people in the city at the time because God wanted to make a public display of His righteousness. That He was righteous. And that there did need to be an atonement paid, a propitiation made to turn aside His wrath at sin. So that was the first reason why uh, the first thing that, that would make us wonder is God righteous is that He had seemed to overlook or passed over sins previously committed. But there was another reason why we might wonder if God is righteous and what was that? The hint to that is in verse 26. What happens when God justifies someone? What is God doing? What does God do when He justifies someone? He declares them righteous. Are they righteous? They're not, are they? Well, once He declares them, yes. But I mean before they aren't. And the, the, the paradox that we talked about that this presents is that under the Old Testament, God had strictly prohibited a verdict declaring that somebody who is wicked is righteous. God said you can't do that. You can't have a court system in which wicked people come in before the judge and the judge just says they're innocent. Okay. You cannot do that, he says. He prohibited that because it isn't righteous. So how could God do it? How could God be righteous and declare sinners like me and you to be righteous when we know we aren't? How can He do that? Can He be righteous? Is God actually righteous? Well, He is righteous and He demonstrated that publicly by offering His Son. He shows that in fact, the way that He declares sinners righteous is by making an atonement, a provision, a propitiation for our sins. And so that's why this issue of the public display is so important so that you and I would know that God is not simply ignoring sin, that He's not indifferent to sin. Sin matters to Him and we know sin matters to Him because we see what it did to His Son at Calvary. Okay, well, those are some of the things we talked about last week. Let's go on then and pick up in verse uh, 27. And Paul here at this point kind of reverts back into this diatribe mode of communication that we talked about earlier. He he did this uh, all the way through chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, this kind of uh, uh, imaginary dialogue or diatribe that he has with this imaginary opponent. And he reverts to that style here again in verse uh, 27. Uh, But he's... He's making a major shift here in his theme. Up till now, he's had several themes kind of going on that we've talked about. Uh, He's been talking about uh, the righteousness of God, uh, men being declared righteous and that sort of thing. He's been talking about man's sin and all men being under sin. And he's been talking about God's wrath. These are all themes that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks. But now... Paul shifts and his theme becomes kind of one central dominant thing, a theme for the next uh, next period here in Romans all the way through at least chapter 4. And you could actually argue that this becomes his theme all the way through chapter 11. And that is the theme of justification by faith. So faith now becomes the dominant theme of Paul's, uh, Paul's argument here. And... Uh, so let's pick that up and we'll read it and I'll make another couple of introductory remarks and then we'll, we'll analyze the passage. He says, where then is boasting? This again would be the question his imaginary opponent is asking. Where then is boasting? And his answer is, it is excluded. And the question comes back, by what kind of law of works? No, but by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Okay? Now, what Paul is doing here, he's actually been doing this kind of all along and he's doing it here as well, is, uh, is Paul's kind of having to walk a fine line here. Because one of the things that he wants one of the things he wants to counter is is uh, this idea of, of actually we were talking about earlier during our prayer time this idea of syncretism okay he's he's struggling against the syncretism of merging Judaism and Christianity he doesn't want us to do that remember we'll have to go all the way back to our introductory lessons in the book of Romans uh uh, remember back to some of the things we said about the Roman church. What was going on in the Roman church at the time that Paul wrote the book of Romans? Now, do you remember when the Roman church was first founded? Of course, we don't know much about that. We kind of have to put the pieces of the puzzle together to figure that out. But when the, when the church was first founded in Rome, who was it founded by? by Jewish believers, okay? presumably people coming back to Rome from Pentecost. So it would be predominantly Jewish believers. And presumably then for the first period of the church's existence in Rome, it consisted chiefly of Jews. And so it must have looked much like the church in Jerusalem looked because it was a predominantly Jewish church and it had a predominantly Jewish flavor to it. But something dramatic happened that changed all that. Do you remember what that was? Yeah. Claudius. Yeah. Okay, Claudius Caesar at one point uh, exiled all the Jews out of Rome. He, he, uh, he thought they were causing a ruckus and he didn't like the ruckus and so he chased them all out of Rome. Okay. So now what do you have left in Rome as far as the church is concerned? All Gentiles. There may have only been a few of them, but the church is completely Gentiles, okay? But, of course, it goes on over the next few years. It goes on. They, they evangelize. They share the gospel. People get saved. But there aren't any Jews in Rome. So everybody who joins the church during this period of time, everybody who becomes a believer, is then what? Obviously. A Gentile, right? Okay. So they're all Gentiles. Okay. Then, after, then eventually Claudius dies. And about five years after the Jews were all run out of Jerusalem, out of Rome, they are now permitted to come back. And so now we have all these Jews, many Jewish believers. Well, maybe not all of them came back, but a number of the Jewish believers who had left Rome now returned. Now, if you were one of those Jewish believers and you returned to Rome and you returned to your, 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 you know, your local Baptist church on the corner of whatever, Apian Way and whatever there in Rome, and you returned, what would you expect? I'm back home, right? Well, we're just going to go on like we always did, right? But it ain't going to be that way because you come back to your local Baptist church on the corner of Apian Way and Caesar Avenue and you find out that you're outnumbered by Gentiles three to one or whatever. Okay? And so it's an entirely different makeup. And this previously kind of Jewish identity of the church in Rome is now completely and permanently altered. But now you have a tension because you have the... And you can imagine what it would go like. You know, if they had Baptists back then, and obviously they didn't, but they had people like Baptists back then, and you can imagine what went on in that church when you had Gentiles over here and Jews over here, and they both had different ideas of how things ought to be done. That's the tension that Paul is dealing with. That's part of the reason the book of Romans is written, is to deal with that tension. And what Paul needs to do, and what Paul is doing here in these verses that we're looking at, is he's trying to walk this fine line because he, he's very certain that he wants to avoid the air of syncretism. What is syncretism? 
Okay? It's the, it's the mixing of things. Okay? It's where things get blended together and they lose their distinction. Okay? Uh, and this is actually, as, uh, uh, as uh, Bob was pointing out earlier, this is a problem that the church often faces is the problem of syncretism. When we were at uh, the camp we go to every summer, uh, this summer when we were there, there was a missionary speaking there who had spent uh, many, many years of his life. He and his wife and their family had spent many years in Senegal and uh, ministering among Muslim people. And uh, now he's back in the States, but he's doing a worldwide ministry involved with Muslims. And, and, he, and he was talking quite a bit during our time together at camp uh, this year. He was talking quite a bit about this problem of syncretism. That what happens is you have a you have a pagan environment, you have a pagan world or uh, community or whatever, and Christians come and they want to share the gospel, they want to preach the gospel, and they want to see people saved. And oftentimes uh, we want to see people saved as fast as we can, right? That's just kind of a thing we have that we like to get it done. And so sometimes we're not willing to take the kind of time we need to to build the kind of foundation that we need to build. That's one of the things I really appreciate about the Chinese ministry here uh, at Trinity. And one of the things that Jim White has emphasized here with the Chinese ministry is the need to take time, not try to rush people to make a decision for Christ, but to take time to make sure the foundation is properly laid. And one of the things that this gentleman at camp was talking about was how missionaries often go into these areas and they have a worldview that they're confronting, this pagan worldview that they are confronting. And they come in and they're really concerned about seeing converts because obviously their support comes from back home. And the one way people back home know that you're being successful as a missionary is if you've got converts, if you've got numbers. Okay, So there's a pressure on missionaries oftentimes to have numbers. So there's a pressure to have conversions. And so oftentimes what happens is as they share the gospel, they're really more concerned uh, or they're primarily concerned just about getting people to make a profession of faith without ensuring that they have the underlying foundation they need to have. So here they come with their Christian, we'll call it worldview. Certainly it is more than that, but I'll just call it that. They come with their Christian worldview and they're confronting this pagan worldview. So you have the pagan worldview A and you have the Christian worldview B and the Christian worldview B comes in and and these people who have the worldview A, they're, you know, they're just kind of overwhelmed. They go, oh, this is pretty something or whatever. And and they are convinced that there are elements of that are true. So they might make an outward profession of faith or whatever, but they really don't understand worldview B. They don't thoroughly understand it. And so they don't understand when they're embracing worldview B that they really can't they can't embrace worldview B without rejecting worldview A. So they hang on to A and they add B to it. And what do you get? C. You don't get worldview B. You get a third worldview that it's a syncretism. It's a synchronizing of worldview A and worldview B. That's the very thing that Paul is trying to avoid here. What Paul wants the believers in Rome to understand is that there are important distinctions that must be made between the old system, the Jewish system, and the new system, Christianity. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Okay. That's one of the things Paul needs to do. But I said he's walking a fine line. And the reason he's walking a fine line is because in addition to avoiding syncretism, he also needs to establish continuity, right? He also needs to establish that this Christian faith is rooted and grounded in all these Old Testament truths. So he needs to help people understand that no, we're not just tacking a few new things on to this old thing and you still really got the old thing with new stuff added. That's not what we're doing. But on the other hand, I don't want you to think that this new thing 
doesn't have a grounding, a foundation, a basis in these old truths. So that's what Paul is trying to do here. And obviously, uh, that's a difficult task to do. It's always a difficult task when someone's coming to Christ to help them understand where the important, what we call the essential differences lie. And, uh, and that is what Paul is trying to do. So, the question then arises then in verse 27 from his imaginary uh, partner here that he's dialoguing with. The question arises, where then is boasting? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is where did that question come from? <laughs> you know, here he is. He's going along about Christ being the propitiation and the public display and all that sort of thing. And suddenly it seems like out of the blue comes this question, where then is boasting? Well, one of the reasons this question would come up is because earlier in chapter 2, he had been talking about the Jews boasting. And he had he'd been talking about the fact that they boasted in the law and, and that sort of thing. And uh, so that's kind of where it's coming from. But, but if, we, if what we got here is Paul having this kind of imaginary dialogue, this diatribe that he's having with this other person, and this other person is kind of an opponent of the gospel or an opponent of Paul's, uh, as I read that, I think, well, that doesn't sound like the question that an opponent would ask. Because it's kind of a setup, for one thing, right? <laughs> it's kind of a setup, okay? Which is the advantage of doing a diatribe. You can kind of create the questions you want to answer, okay? So it's kind of a setup. But I think, what, what opponent of Paul's would ever say, where then is boasting? Because it doesn't make you look good, right? I mean, even if you really thought, well, I want to boast, you wouldn't say to Paul, well, what, don't I get to boast? You wouldn't say that, right? Well, that's the advantage of a diatribe. No, no opponent of Paul's is ever going to openly say, don't I get to boast in this? But in reality, that's what's going on in our hearts, isn't it? And so the advantage of the diatribe is Paul can get him to say what he would never really openly say. He's identifying really what the struggle is in this guy's heart. He's identifying what the struggle is in our hearts. The reason we resist the gospel is because really we want to boast. And Paul, what you're saying, where does boasting fit in? Where do I get any credit, Paul? In this gospel you're talking about. Where do I get any credit? You mean, there's nothing I get to do? Where then is boasting? And Paul says, it is excluded. It is shut out. The door is shut on boasting. No more boasting allowed. <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking for a means to boast, if you're looking for some way to point to yourself and say, what a good boy am I, then you've got to stay away from Paul's Gospel. Because in Paul's Gospel, boasting is excluded. Well, then the, the uh, question comes back to Paul. On what basis is, is boasting excluded? By what law, he says, by what law is boasting excluded of works? Is it, is it excluded by a law of works? And Paul says, no, it's not excluded by a law of works. It's excluded by a law of faith. Now, remember, when Paul uses the word law in Romans, we have to always stop and ask ourselves, how is he using it? Because he uses it a bunch of different ways, Okay. And I gave you a handout that gave you some of the ways that the word law is used in Romans uh, several weeks ago. In this case, when Paul is using the word law, most commentators agree that the idea he has in mind is the idea of a principle or a general rule. Okay. So the question that's being asked is, 
under what principle or by what general rule are you excluding boasting? Are you doing it by the general principle of works? Or are you doing it by some other principle? That, and Paul says, no, I'm not doing it by the general principle of works. I'm doing it by the general principle of faith. Okay, so that's kind of the sense. Now, that's not to say that Paul doesn't have in his mind to some degree uh, the, the Old Testament law and the Mosaic law. That may be in there, but you'll notice that the word doesn't have, in this, in this passage here, doesn't have the definite article. And typically, usually, when the definite article is included, that's a reference to either the Mosaic law or the Old Testament scriptures. But the definite article isn't here. And so, it's not a reference directly to the Mosaic Law or the Old Testament, but it is this idea of this kind of general principle of works. And one of the things that Paul begins to do here that will be very important for our understanding of Romans is he's beginning to broaden our understanding of law and works now. Up till now, when he's talked about the law, he's talked predominantly, not exclusively, but he's talked predominantly about the Mosaic Law and the Old Testament. Okay. But now he's going to start broadening it out. And when he gets into the next chapter and he talks about Abraham, he's really going to make it clear that we're not just talking about Mosaic Law. But what we're talking about is this whole idea of good works. And that's imperative for us to understand. Because there are commentators and there are Christians, or at least so-called Christians today, who want to say that when Paul is talking about works, uh, being excluded for salvation in Romans, he's really only talking about the law, the Old Testament law. And we really are saved by works, just not by Old Testament law works. But Paul doesn't leave us that option. He's beginning here to broaden it out. <clears throat> so Paul, <clears throat> or the questioner first, kind of gives this kind of general overall category. Okay. And the overall category, this kind of overall principle that covers everybody is this principle of works. And the question is, is, is not really specifically about the law, the Old Testament law, but it's about this principle of doing good works. And the question is, is a man justified by works? Is this idea of boasting about my justification, is that excluded by this idea of doing good works? And Paul says, no. It's excluded by a principle, an overarching principle of faith. But we maintain, he says, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And there, he is referring to the Old Testament law. Okay, But what he's saying is, when I say that a man is not justified by the works of the law, I'm saying, I'm, 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 deduct, I'm deducing the specific from the general. Now, there's a reason I know that man is not justified by the works of the law is because I know that man is never justified by works. There's the overarching principle of works and under that overall arching principle of works is the specific work of keeping the law. And Paul says, I know keeping the law doesn't, doesn't exclude boasting because I know that works does not exclude boasting. And so he says, we maintain that a man is justified instead by faith. This is the overarching principle that applies. This applies over all men. The law only applied to the Jews. But faith and the idea of faith, it applies to all men. And I am maintaining, he says that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, this was an important lesson I had to learn many years ago <clears throat> because I really didn't understand what faith was 
or maybe I should say what faith isn't. Okay? And I had to come to understand what faith isn't. And I had a guy, uh, I was real involved in, uh, in uh, Christian ministry and preaching and, and evangelizing and discipling and all that sort of thing here in Norman. And, uh, and very active in that. And, uh, and then there was a gentleman came to town. He's probably about my age, maybe a little bit older. And he came to town and he was, as far as I know, he was a believer. Uh, some things he did made me wonder, but I think he was a believer. But he kind of had his own different theology that he was pushing. And he was pushing it very vigorously. And he was doing it. He was primarily he wasn't going out on the campus and witnessing and trying to get people saved. Primarily he was going to all the Christians and all the Christian groups and pushing his particular theology, which I won't identify specifically uh, right now because it's not germane. Okay, but he was kind of pushing because he wanted to get people to follow him and join his group. Okay, uh, and uh, and it just so happened that uh, the guy just lived right down the alley from us. And so I remember one time I went down the alley to meet with this guy and, and kind of talk over things and some of the problems I was having with him kind of pushing his, pushing his thing on, on all the, not just our group, but a number of different Christian groups were struggling with how we deal with this guy. And so I went to sit down and talk with him. And one of the things that he wanted to convince me of is that when we say that somebody has to believe to be saved or when somebody uh, somebody has to have faith to be saved that really that's a doctrine of works. <laughs> and goes, huh? <laughs> well, this is how he did it. And I remember him drawing this out on a piece of paper for me. He said, now, when you believe... That's a dorky pen. Let me get a better one here. Uh, he said, when you believe, oh, that's much better. He said, when you believe, that's something you do, right? Pardon? Well, yeah, but it is something you do, right? I mean, it is in the Greek, in the active voice. It's not in the passive voice. It's in the active voice. So it's something. It's not something that does. It's not something that's done to me. It's something that I do. Right? But you're right. It's in the mind. It's in the heart. Okay. But it's something I do. Okay. But if I do something, it's a what? It's a deed. Right? And a deed is in fact. A work. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? If you're saved because of believing, you're saved by your works. Now, you're shaking your head, but that looks like pretty irrefutable logic to me. And when he drew it out for me, I went, okay, I know there's something wrong there, but I haven't figured out what it is. So when you're sleeping, you're also working. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> It took me a while to figure out how to answer that. It took me studying the book of Romans. It took finding out what is faith. What does Paul say faith is? Because I cannot deny that faith or believing is something you do. The question is, is it a work? And the answer is no. So somewhere along here, this, this little chart, this little diagram he drew breaks down. And it breaks down right here in verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified. How? By faith. What? Apart from works. And what we discover as we go through the book of Romans, and we'll see it over and over and over again in the book of Romans, that Paul absolutely declares that faith is not a work. Certainly it's a work in the sense that it's something we do. 
But it's not a work in the sense that Paul is using the word work when he says we are not saved by our works. It is categorically different. So over and over again in Romans, Paul says things like faith apart from works. Or he talks about the person who be, who ceases from working and believes. So in Paul's theology, faith is not a work. Now this is important. This affects, you know, it seems it may seem trivial or unimportant to you, but it really goes to some foundational issues of theology. That faith is not a work. And there are many Christians who don't understand that. Now, a work, when Paul is using the term work, he's talking about good works, right? He's talking about works that are inherently meritorious. Now, I don't mean they're meritorious in the sense that they satisfy the wrath of God, but I mean they're just good things and they are by definition good. So, if, for example, I leave church this morning and I go out the door here and I look across the street and there, I see a little boy on his tricycle there and he goes wheeling down the sidewalk on his tricycle and he runs into a tree and he smashes and he goes flying off his tricycle and he goes sliding down the sidewalk. You know, you can see the blood and everything flowing at this point. Okay. And I see this happen. And I leave where I am and I go across the street and I help that little boy. My crossing the street to help that little boy is a meritorious work. It's a good thing, right? There's no way about it. It's just a good thing to do. On the other hand, oftentimes I go for walks. I just go walking and you know to pray or to think or just to get some fresh air. Okay. And I go for a walk. And oftentimes when I'm walking, if you followed me, you'd go, this guy has no plan. You know, he kind of meanders here and he meanders there and he crosses, you know. And uh, so... You know, sometimes I just cross the street just because I want to be on the other side of the street. Now, when I cross the street after leaving church here to help the little boy who just slid down the sidewalk on his knees, that was meritorious. But when I cross the street just as an arbitrary, you know, whatever, you know, that's not meritorious. That's just, you know, <laughs> it has no merit or value. Itself. It's just something I just did. Okay. What we have to understand is Paul is talking about meritorious works. Things that are inherently meritorious or essentially meritorious. And he says, faith is not one of those things. What was the back then? I was wondering what the guy's point was. Was he trying to say we're saved by works? Was he trying to say we're not saved? Or, or what's... Okay, you're pressing me on this. He was trying, he was trying to push an extreme version of Calvinism. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, at any rate, uh, works then is, in Paul's use of the term, is meritorious. That's why he says faith is apart from works. Because faith has no intrinsic merit. What is faith? Faith is when I cease to look at myself and place my confidence in an object. And so it is the object that makes my faith efficacious. It is not the faith itself. Because I can believe in a tree. I can believe in Buddha. I can put my faith in all kinds of things, but my faith has no merit. What makes my faith efficacious, what makes my faith work, if I can use that word, to justify me is the object of the faith. So I come to understand then that faith is not a work. And we'll harp on this all the way through Romans. We'll harp on it again and again and again. Faith is not a work. Because oftentimes what we subtly think in the back of our minds is that 
Faith is a work. But we're saved by faith and not by works. And we think, well, what that really means is faith is a work that's clear up here. Everything else is down here. All the other works are down here. And faith is this really, 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 really good work. And that faith saves us. That work saves us. But all this other faith, all this other work doesn't. We think that subconsciously. How do I know we think that subconsciously? Because oftentimes, when people struggle with certain aspects of theology, one of the things they're try- they, they tend to say is, if you are saved by your believing in God, then really you're getting credit for it. You're, if you choose to believe God, if you believe God, you're getting credit for believing God. But there is no merit and there is no credit in faith. Faith is not meritorious. And so, when I get to heaven and God says to me, why should I let you into heaven? I can assure you my answer will not be because I believe God. Because it's not about me. It's about Him. My answer will be because, Father, of what your Son did. That will be my answer. It is not because of what I've done. It's not because I believe, but it's because of what He did. And my faith just opens the door to let that come in. There's no merit in that. I don't get any points for that. Faith is not a work. And Paul will say that over and over and over again. Okay? Well, so he says, it is a faith... We're out of time. Okay, so let's do this. Next week, we will finish talking about these last couple verses, three verses, where God talks about being, where Paul talks about God being one and about the law. And we'll talk about those, but we'll also go on into chapter four. So you can go ahead and use your study sheets for next week and we'll go on into chapter four, but we will touch on some of these last few points that I wanted to get today uh, next week. So that's what we'll do. Thank you. Ah.